Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a major ISIS leader is dead. What does that mean to the organization? The Ontario legislature is back in session. Does anybody recognize anybody? It's been so long. And a number of voices are asking for a new leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Should Andrew Scheer get another chance? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. A major ISIS leader was killed in a raid by the U.S. over the weekend. How did this all come about? Uh, why now? And what does this mean for the region? To talk more about all of this, David Harris is with us in Cygnus Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert. He's with us now. David, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, good to speak to you again, Scott. Uh, first of all, David, how significant is this? Well, I think it's obviously got major significance. It uh, takes somebody out of the mix who uh, was very significant in terms of his uh, per- the perception of the power and influence that he was able to wield. Now, it's got to be conceded, of course, that by the time uh, his comeuppance came, he uh, obviously didn't find that his writ was running very far or effectively because he was, uh, as uh, somebody once said in another case, a kind of Cardinal Richelieu without his bishops. He was running low on people, uh, his forces were being overwhelmed, and so on and so forth. But Again, in terms of uh, general attitudes, expectations, confidence in ISIS, for at least the short term, this individual who was spun as something of a great leader has been caught up with, has been dealt with. And there is a kind of correlative advantage to uh, the United States and those forces that were arrayed against Baghdadi because it underscores the prowess of uh, intelligence on the so-called good guy side in dealing with that kind of threat. So anyone else who may be in a position to associate themselves with this fellow's ideology may at least have to take into consideration the possibility that they could come to a similar end. That won't obviously interfere with the thinking of a lot of similarly-minded people because, of course, they are double-dyed religious fanatics and may feel that uh, the risk of death could, if anything, incentivize their deepening involvement in this kind of group so that they wind up, as they would regard it, in paradise uh, in the cause. Hmm. But in general, uh, this is a pretty good message in the short term. And as we're finding more and more details, or at least claim details, about how this all unfolded, it does send what I'd imagine would be an unnerving message to any enemies of uh, the United States and others, because we are hearing, and in breaking news, I think Reuters is uh, making a case that through the use of informants, captured individuals, uh, of course, extreme high-technology materiel, uh, the United States was ultimately able to work through former uh, associates of Baghdadi to identify his whereabouts and then uh, reach him. Why now? If we go by the reports, it is simply that uh, it's taken this long to get him. There have been some suggestions, I suppose, uh, you've probably seen them, that President Trump may have felt this might be a last good opportunity to have a go at Baghdadi because after about this point, 
the withdrawal of American forces might have rendered this sort of operation more difficult. And there may be indeed something to be said for this. All of that, of course, going back to the original highly controversial decision Mr. Trump made to uh, withdraw forces in what even some of his, uh, that is, the president's supporters regarded as uh, an impulsive, unwise move. Uh, That was my next question. Is this a reaction to that? Well, we let this happen, but we're not going to let this person get away. It it could well be. Um, It's it's a very, I mean, it's a very tough one, obviously, for those of us on the outside to uh, assess. But the timing seems plausible for an interpretation that this was a last go. And um, it, it brings back to mind some observations made, again, by people, in this case, uh, folk who had been in significant U.S. military positions and who were very favorably and have been very favorably disposed to the president, who, upon hearing about the president's decision to withdraw so much of uh, the American force in the region, um, they said, look, one of the great concerns, apart from some of the more obvious ones, is that in particularly pulling out our support for the Kurds and in the areas where the Kurds are prominent, we lose all kinds of intelligence possibilities. A lot of people who might be particularly well-informed on the ground will no longer be well within our reach, or at least comfortably so. And so all kinds of related options evaporate for the Americans. That was the logic, again, of part of the objection to the American withdrawal. Uh, The withdrawal itself, uh, I think uh, it's fair to say, was quite a stunning apparent reversal of where things were going, and and with much broader strategic implications than I think many necessarily appreciate, because in lands and areas far, far distant from anything to do with Syria, Iraq, the Middle East, uh, the Israel front, all of that, on the other side of the world, countries are watching. And these would include some of the more predatory, disturbing regimes, China, of course, and Russia. And they're trying to assess what kind of political military will and stomach the United States and its allies would have for not just in general defending itself on a worldwide basis, but of course for supporting those whom it appeared the United States and its allies were determined to the point of life and death to support. When all of a sudden you withdraw, then you know, you're back to questions about whether your strategic credibility uh, might not go through a disastrous phase such as was witnessed after the uh, U.S. pulled out of uh, Vietnam and let its uh, South Vietnamese ally uh, essentially collapse. And, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, we know from history, in 1933, there was a famous Oxford Union debate in Britain where a resolution was carried, was supported by students and debaters and so on, to the effect that they would not fight for king and country. And it was known that the Nazis, who, of course, I guess at about that time had come to power, had taken immense interest in that resolution as a guide to the political will and thus ultimately the military will of the British people in possibly confronting Nazis long-term. So all of these things can risk emboldening enemies present and future. 
Uh, we remember a few months ago uh, when the territorial war was over, uh, the tr- uh, President Trump said that uh, that's it for ISIS. Then, of course, uh, pulls out the support for Kurds. All of a sudden, we're talking about ISIS again. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, this this capture. Uh, where does this leave ISIS? What happens now with this vacuum? Actually, thank you for raising that key point about the Obama administration, because any discussion about the failings at the presidential level and decision-making connected to ISIS cannot avoid the catastrophe, uh, really, for so much of humanity in that neighborhood of the Obama decision to withdraw. And many people feel that that, and that therefore the Obama administration was responsible to a very significant degree for the hideous mayhem, rape, pillage, and goodness knows what else that eventuated, and of course, major uh, movements of population as well. So, well, you're right, whilst we uh, uh, must necessarily focus today on the uh, Trump administration's failings, uh, you can see that there is activity that could be mistaken for amateur hour at the highest levels of Mm. Western governance from time to time, of course, not excluding in our own countries. So where does this leave ISIS now? Well, at the moment, of course, they've taken a tremendous shock. And that even with the absence or relative absence, I don't exaggerate, of the U.S. military there, there uh, does remain uh, some pretty lethal hostile force in the form of, of course, Russia, their support of the Syrians, who are still highly active and prepared to be aggressive in dealing with the ISIS nightmare, as it was for them and others. And uh, so it goes. So uh, it would be wrong of me to portray this as a a vacuum that's developed. But do you want, as somebody might ask, do you want the Russians as your power projection and guarantor of safety and security in that area? I mean, this the fact of the new Russian prominence uh, that's uh, emerged from a day in the 1970s when uh, the Russians had more or less evacuated a a good deal of their former areas of influence in the Middle East is uh, a most upsetting thing and, uh, again, has been a basis for criticism of uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, This is is quite something that Putin's achieved. I don't, uh, of course, deny the fact that uh, the Russians had preserved their former Soviet uh, naval uh, facility on, uh, I guess, Syria's uh, west coast. But uh, that was a really a, almost a last stand kind of place up till about now. So things have changed. And that means, because it does involve a strategic superpower, Russia, that they have changed in a strategic way. What does this do for uh, Donald Trump? Uh, obviously, he's claiming this as a, as a massive victory um, and, and quoted as saying some uh, unpresidential things, which I guess we shouldn't be su- surprised at. Uh, considering what has happened in the last few weeks, how is the world viewing Donald Trump at this point? Well, again, I think it was probably indicative that uh, notwithstanding the fact But Trump has had, uh, I suppose, a a raid against him. Uh, A good deal of the uh, so-called intellectual class and uh, media and all the rest, uh, on this particular decision at least, it seems undeniable that uh, it has the qualities of uh, impulse control as an issue, 
that it was uh, wrong-headed, and not even necessarily uh, if you there there may be many reasonable people uh, with whom I might not necessarily agree who would have liked to have seen a marked drawdown of American forces. Um, and, and just incidentally, it's, it's worth mentioning. It's fascinating how we as foreigners to the United States um, uh, democracy and budget can so blithely talk about the way the Americans should be expending their blood and treasure, right? Uh, often in our, in our name and to assist our security, broadly speaking, uh, as we sit back comfortably. But um, overall, one of the things that I think struck many was that even if you believed, as the president seems to have believed, that it was not the U.S. place to stay in the uh, in the region and in the theater of operations, there are ways that you can withdraw. And anything like a withdrawal, let alone a retreat under fire, is considered one of the most dangerous um, uh, movements and propositions in military operations, because, of course, you've got a vastly changing situation, often, if you're talking to retreat, very much to your disadvantage, and the enemy, if they're able to organize, consolidate, and move, can overwhelm what might otherwise be your defensive positions on withdrawal. We saw, as far as we can determine, the Kurds fall victim to this because they appear to have had no more warning than the average uh, hmm. TV or computer viewer in Minnesota about the president's decision. And so they were left standing with their proverbial pants down. It's uh, been reported that even worse, that according to some understandings or other that are not at all clear to me, some of the Kurdish defenses were actually... Uh, taken apart by the Kurds, um, uh, apparently on the basis that they assumed the Americans would provide any kind of continuing force needed for their basic defense. Um, so this assumes a hideous countenance if you start looking at things in that mm. way, and it yet again rebounds on the strategic credibility of uh, the Western allies, and at this point the United States administration in particular. David Harris has been with us in Cygnus Strategic Group. He is a terrorism expert. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks, Scott. Take care. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about ISIS and uh, the loss of a head leader, al-Baghdadi, done, uh, killed in uh, in the Middle East. Donald Trump, of course, taking uh, uh, that opportunity to uh, wave the flag and, and, uh, and say what a great job he has done. This in the wake of pulling support for the Kurds, of course, uh, which many have say uh, have said has empowered ISIS. So how do we balance all of this? Let's bring in Alex Wilner, Associate Professor of International Relations, Norman, School, uh, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and is with us now. Alex, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. So uh, my, my first question is, why is this happening now? Why, his, why is the targeting happening now and his death? Correct. Uh, I think basically, the, uh, from what I understand, um, U.S. intelligence uh, suggested, maybe even up to a month ago, or several weeks anyways, that Baghdadi was in the Idlib province of Syria. And so, uh, you know, when the stars line up, 
uh, both in intelligence and capability, the U.S. Uh, took a shot. And I think this was this was a daring raid involving um, several dozen, up to up to a hundred perhaps uh, personnel from the United States, and uh, and ultimately led to his death. I mean, it had the had those stars lined up uh, weeks ago, then we would have seen the raid then, right? So it's just I think the timing is not necessarily auspicious, but it's it was certainly the time for this to happen. So how significant is this? What does it mean for ISIS? I think it is significant in some ways. I mean, um, uh, you know, as your introduction suggested, al-Baghdadi was not just not just the voice of ISIS. He was the operational and inspirational leader of the organization. He had, you know, he had been in power um, before ISIS was an organization. He was in power of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq starting in 2010. And so he, he had, you know, uh, you know, a number of um, important positions of power within the structures of al-Qaeda. And, of course, he then went on to self-declare the caliphate um, and attract, uh, you know, up, up, upwards of 40,000 foreigners to come and join him in his battle in the region. And he went on to inspire numbers, uh, you know, several dozen other terrorist uh, attacks across the world. So this is significant in the sense that he, he needed to be uh, either captured or killed from a military standpoint. But ISIS, um, you know, just like al-Qaeda before it, can thrive with his loss as well. So there's, you know, the battle's not done, all to say. Uh, of course, uh, just a while back, Donald Trump pulls support from the Kurds. Immediately, Turkey, uh, Turkey goes in and, and, and the military action starts. Uh, and now this situation, m- many were saying that uh, as soon as the U.S. Uh, withdrew, that... Uh, of course, prisons that were holding ISIS members uh, were, were then opened up and such, and, and that ISIS uh, could then start running rampant. How does this balance with all of that? Right. I mean, in, in one important way, ISIS was able to become as large as it was because of prison breaks in Iraq and later on in Syria. Um, and so there is you know, suspicion, or, suspicion or fear, of course, that um, something like this could happen again as the Kurds kind of um, veer towards their next battle with Turkey. And, of course, the Kurds are, are holding several hundred, perhaps several thousand ISIS fighters and, and members of their families. So there is fear, that, of course, that ISIS um, will be able to take advantage of the Kurdish um, position. Um, at the same time, right, I think the U.S. military uh, suggests that there's at least 10,000 ISIS fighters at large in the region, um, and there may be others, sleeper cells and others that are um, aligned with it, uh, living, including in the West. So, it, again, like this, you know, Baghdadi's um, death is an important milestone. He will be replaced by the organization. We don't necessarily know when or how or by whom, really, but he will be replaced. And those fighters, uh, some of them, many of them perhaps, will continue fighting in his name and in, in his cause, more importantly. How concerned are you about retaliation? I think ISIS doesn't need an excuse to conduct attacks. Right. I think a uh, retaliation would be nice for them. I think it's certainly clear uh, in the past that they have operational links across the world, including in Europe and North America. Um, and they they were at the height of their power, able to conduct a number of very brutal attacks, including the highlights right in Paris and Belgium and elsewhere. So, so certainly that some capacity might still exist. Um, there's also the risk, of course, that members that you know individuals who were um, galvan or, or were motivated by al-Baghdadi and by ISIS but were never really recruited by them um, might 
see this as an opportunity to to lash out. So those kind of lone actor attempts and lone actor attacks might be possible uh, as well. Um, of course, the war continues. I mean, the war against Al-Qaeda, the war against Al-Qaeda affiliates, the war against ISIS and its affiliates, you know, this will go on uh, certainly for a number of years, perhaps even decades. Obviously, with this sort of military maneuver, it takes a great deal of, t- of intelligence. You were talking about the sheer numbers it would take to pull this sort of thing off. With the United States pulling out of the area, how does, uh, is this the last chance to get, to gain such valuable intelligence? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Certainly, from my understanding of the raid itself, the U.S. Uh, role in Syria allowed it to cultivate those intelligence relationships that it needed to get the information that ultimately led to Baghdadi's um, death. And so, you know, being in a position to uh, create those relationships and then develop them um, is an important one. Um, I think the U.S. will probably lose some assets like that. Of course, um, it's one thing to pull out the U.S. military. It's another one to pull out the CIA in, 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 in as well. So there's there's going to be uh, a U.S. presence in the region, certainly. It might not be uh, within the military structure. It might be within the intelligence structure. But I think something will be lost, certainly, for the United States as it moves, moves its uh, forces out. Uh, obviously, U.S. out, Russia moving in. Is that better? It's not necessarily better. Russia has its own objectives and goals in the region. Russia has been rather adept at cultivating relationships with antagonistic and opposing forces. So it's been able to bolster Syria and fight alongside Hezbollah while, um, you know, supporting Turkey. And, you know, these forces don't necessarily see eye to eye. And of course, Russia has also been able to cultivate its relationship with Israel, all the while Israel is able to hammer away and bomb Hezbollah in Syria. So Russia has been adept at kind of um, playing all sides against each other to a certain degree, um, and it allowed space for each of these different actors to carve out, um, you know, a role for themselves as they saw fit. Um, that's that's a tricky position to be. It's one the United States hasn't necessarily always been uh, very well able to do in the region. Um, it's, but I'm curious to see what the end game is here for Russia. Certainly, the that's war, my next qu- that's my next question. Yeah. What's Russia, Russia's objective here? What's the role here? I, the immediate role, stretching back to 20, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15, was not only to help crush ISIS um, and the terrorist threat to Russia uh, regionally, but also to bolster uh, the Assad regime, which Russia saw as its uh, primary partner in the region, especially after Gaddafi's fall in Libya. And so, so you know, having achieved that uh, more limited success of of allowing the Assad regime to survive. I guess the next goal would be to allow the Assad regime to recoup Idlib province. We'll see how that works out. Um, and then obviously to, to allow Turkey to, to do what it needs, but to contain Turkey perhaps to the north of Syria and, and, and stop the two from, from fighting each other. Although I, I doubt that Syria is in a position to take on the Turks, but it'll be up to Russia perhaps to, um, to hold the Turks back into a certain regard. But, you know, there the are lots of end games. Some of them are regional. Some of them are more nationally based for Russia. But, but certainly there's a lot in play. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump, the president, was uh, criticized for pulling out American troops. Does this capture make it all better? Does this, is this a win for him? It doesn't make it all better. It's certainly a win for him. We should expect to hear him bloat about this, you know, right into the elections, the U.S. presidential elections. This is going to be his shining uh, moment. Um, it's his Bin Laden moment, right? So 
Um, it's a, it's, I think it's even yeah, I think even alluded to it was bigger than Bin Laden. Is that the case? Right. I mean, it, this is showmanship, right? I mean, Bin Laden was the cause of the most uh, awful terrorist attack in the United States uh, with thousands of deaths. Uh, Baghdadi led an organization. Um, wasn't able to kill all that many Americans, all told, right? But the the, the point is the magnitude is not necessarily important. It's that uh, it's that under Trump's orders, he was able to kill uh, the number one uh, you know terrorist figure. However, and so we're, and we're going to be able to see he's going to he's going to show he's going to showcase that forever. That's 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 for sure. In terms of you know, does this make it better with the Kurds? I don't think so. Certainly, the Kurds would be happy today that that uh, Baghdadi is dead. He you know, was the cause of great misery and 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 death in the region for many years. Um, so I think his demise will be applauded. Um, but you know, I I think if you're a Kurdish faction right now in Syria, you're you're looking about and trying to wonder what the next month will look like. So does this does this complicate things? I mean, how does it change the discussion moving forward now with this capture? I mean, the, his death. So ISIS is you know Baghdadi's death. Uh, changes some things for ISIS. Um, they'll obviously have to replace him, at least you know identify a, su- a successor. Not exactly sure who that might be, and we're not exactly sure uh, how often that successor will actually you know communicate with the world. Uh, Baghdadi himself is quite a recluse. I think part of that was operational security, right? He was trying to be quiet so that he could survive. Um, so ISIS has to do some regrouping. It's certainly um, the ideology that it. Uh, espouse and the ideology that it tried to um, to promote um, doesn't die with Baghdadi. So again, you know, the war on terrorism, if you want to call it that, um, requires uh, the you know the United States in this case to not only take shots at the organizations and the organizational structures as they did with the Baghdadi raid, but requires a much larger focus on uh, on, this, on the motivating factors that underline the ideology that Baghdadi was able to capture and use. So this, again, uh, you know, this one episode in, in, in a number of other episodes to come, and it's an important one, but there's still much more work to be done. Many have said that uh, America has lost credibility on the world stage with what has happened over the last several weeks and such. Does this add to, uh, does this uh, bolster that? I, I mean, Trump, you know, President Trump even said uh, in the Q&A yesterday that, you know, part of this is about messaging U.S. capabilities to capabilities to its adversaries. Um, I think there's some messaging communication that went along with the Bin Laden raid as well in 2011. I mean, the message ultimately, and Trump, you know, issued this again, was that the United States is able and willing to use its capabilities, intelligence, uh, and military capabilities to identify targets and capture or kill them when needed. So that's an important message that Trump, I think, tried to illustrate. Uh, in his uh, debrief, and to, if only to send a message to the would-be al-Baghdadis that, um, you know, that when they take up a position and a role in a terrorist organization, that they have to look over their shoulders for the rest of their lives. That's certainly the message from the Bin Laden raid previous, and it's again one that Trump's using to, uh, today and in, in the, and probably in the next couple of days to to uh, to communicate uh, you know a side victory from the Baghdadi raid. So I think I think that's an important message, and I think it's one that will be felt and resonated. Um, and so I think that's that's an important victory, uh, a sh- narrow victory, but certainly an important one. Is it a st- is it a distraction from the Curtis situation? I don't think so. I think this raid took place because of actionable intelligence 
suggesting that they, that now was the time to strike. Um, maybe, you know, and there's reports of this in international media, maybe there was a kind of a closing window of opportunity, right, in the sense that the U.S. was withdrawing. Uh, but they, you know, they have personnel in the in the region more broadly that might have been able to carry this out from another place had the had the raid occurred, say, in three months from now. Um, but I, I think the timing is not necessarily um, related to the drawdown. Mm-hmm. Some suggest, and the New York Times wrote this, right, that they suggested that Trump, you know, took credit for this. But um, some reporting suggests that the raid actually may have occurred in a quicker time frame because of the fear that mm-hmm. the U.S. had of its lack of ability in the region. But, you know, again, there would have been a number of ways in which this raid could have been carried out. And you aren't concerned that this will hinder the U.S.'s intelligence gathering capabilities? The, dra- the drawdown. Yeah. I think it will, it will to a certain degree, but um, the United States will have cultivated relationships in the region with its allies and partners, regardless of the military footprint. So some of those will continue and thrive. Um, and, you know, there's intelligence sharing arrangements that will continue. It's that the U.S. Um, drawdown militarily opens up space for others to step in, as Turkey has. So the U.S. might have less leverage, but they'll still be able to collect intelligence as needed. Alex Wilner has been with us, Associate Professor, International Relations, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Alex, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Travis Danraj, Queen's Park reporter, Global News. He is with us now. Travis, do you even recognize the premier? I understand he's got a different hairdo this time out. Uh, he does. He has a shorter, a little bit of a, a <laughs> he's, cropped hairdo. He's, right gone, he's gone brunette. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know if there was any hair dye involved. But, yeah, he was back in action today. There's certainly... Um, was a bit of a break, 144 days to be exact, but uh, we saw a bit of a refreshed, toned down uh, tone when it comes to the debate in the House for question period. Whether or not that will last, that's certainly a, a big question mark, but there were only two standing ovations today from the PC caucus, and usually <laughs> we would see a lot more than that, Scott. Did you notice any change? I mean, sure, they talk about this at the beginning of the session. Nobody expects this is going to, going to last. But did you actually so, feel a different vibe this time out? Yeah, I mean, listen, is it a superficial conversation or not? Is it, is it going to last like a week or two? We'll see. But certainly there has been directive um, from the House Leader, Paul Calandra, to uh, MPPs within the PC caucus. So let's 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 just turn the, the dial down a little bit here. Let's take the temperature down when it comes to at least the first couple of days. Um, you know, will that lead to more substantive debate? Hopefully. Um, but you know, I talked to Andrea Horvath, the opposition leader, about that, and she said that doesn't change what the policies this government are putting. Through are if there's a if there's a nicer more collegial tone that's great but it's the policy when it comes down to it and you have to remember as well there has been uh, not only a change in tone but a, a change in who's handling what there's that huge um, cabinet shuffle right before we went on break and there was that small little cabinet shuffle on election day uh, it's about a week ago or so uh, so we, we'll see we'll, how things go in this second go at us. Do politicians realize, I I guess my question here, Travis, is why are they doing this now? Uh, You know, at the end of the day, do they realize that people are a little annoyed, a lot annoyed at this and uh, a little cynical about the whole whole process? Well, I think that, you know, there was the assessment early on that they could just come in 
and they could, you know, put in their efficiencies slash cuts, depending on who you talk to. Um, and they were elected on a, a mandate to find efficiencies on austerity measures and that they could just move ahead with that. They realized very quickly on that there are certain groups that weren't going to take kindly to that. You saw, you know, that huge protest with parents with children with autism, a number of those protests. Um, even today uh, on the grounds when MPPs were arriving here at Queens Park in downtown Toronto, there were protesters uh, talking about education, uh, autism file, etc. So I think that they have realized uh, now with a fresh pair of eyes and some new people in senior roles behind the scenes um, that, you know, maybe the tactics that they took initially didn't work and maybe they do have to take a softer tone, not only within question period, but when it does come to policies. And we've seen, you know, walk backs on a number of fronts. Um, but again, you know, the, the premier was elected on, on, on cutting costs and saving money. So he has to do that. And that's not going to make everyone happy. Uh, how is there any chatter today about the federal election results in any role uh, Doug Ford may or have or had not have had in that election? How much of that influences what we're seeing today? So, well, it's interesting because, you know, when you look at the map around the GTA, most of the ridings that Doug Ford uh, won in were solid red liberal red in the federal election. There wasn't a lot of flipping going on in terms of, uh, you know, federal ridings did. Doug Ford, the Ford factor that we've talked about before, play into that? Well, you know, I'll leave that to the pundits to decide. But the, the federal election did come up in question period today, and it was a PC member, I think it was Stan Show, who asked the premier about it. And he said, listen, I, I called Justin Trudeau last week. I said that I want to put politics behind, and I've never seen the country this divided, um, and we need to unite the country, and I'm going to be part of that movement. Now, take all of that and then consider that this government – is still fighting the federal government on the carbon tax, something that the premier back in August said that he was not going to do because he was going to allow, you know, the voters to speak. And if, you know, democracy decided that they wanted Justin Trudeau again, he's going to drop that battle. They're still continuing on with this battle, which is costing a lot of money. I asked Greg Rickford, the energy minister today, about the sticker campaign, um, you know, the stickers that uh, fight the carbon tax, the gas pump, the gas stations. Exactly. I said, is that continuing? He said, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, they're, they're kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth, whether or not the premier and the prime minister are able to bury the hatchet. Again, we'll see. Major issues heading into this session. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so we've got the education talks, which we talked a little bit about. These negotiations are ongoing right now, and there, there's no love lost between the OSSTF, which is the High School Teachers Union, uh, ESPO, which is the Elementary Teachers Union, and Minister Stephen Lecce. Uh, you know, uh, Minister Lecce, during the federal election campaign, was able to secure a deal with QP education workers. Is he going to be able to do that? With the teachers' union, you know, some would argue much stronger unions. Um, again, time will tell. But, you know, he has said that he wants to keep compensation to 1%. The unions have said that they want to see that go up with the inflation. So that's one battle that they are going to have to tackle. Something else is retail alcohol sales and this battle that is going on right now is legal court battle with the beer store and tearing up that contract. That could cost hundreds of millions of dollars. That was a piece of legislation that they put forward 
Uh, before they went on break, they're going to try to pass that into law, and we'll see what the actual compensation will be. On uh, you know just the, the fiscal front overall, we're waiting for the fall economic statement, which is set uh, to come out in November, and Rod Phillips, the new finance minister, will deliver that, and that should give us a better idea as to how uh, the, the province is doing. And it, it, you know, today we saw news that Moody's, the international agency that that gives you know uh, countries and provinces and states uh, credit ratings, downgraded Ontario's rating. So. We'll see how things go in the fiscal update, but that's another one for folks, you know, in the Toronto area. There's, uh, you know, some changes to Ontario Place, which is a big piece of real estate here. We'll see what the proposals are to change that piece of property. Those are just a, a few of many things they've got on the agenda. Travis Danraj has been with us, Global News, Queen's Park reporter. Uh, It appears that unity might even be in fashion uh, this session. Travis, thanks so much for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Growing number of voices say that Andrew Scheer should not stay on as conservative leader. Uh, And we had this discussion. We've had this discussion many times on the show, whereas uh, the leadership candidates this time out, not as strong for the conservatives. I think a lot of conservatives took a powder just thinking that Justin Trudeau would automatically get two terms because the honeymoon period was so long. No one realizing that the SNC-Lavalin and the blackface issues and such would, uh, you know, the prime minister would spend the the first term shooting himself in the foot. Uh, That being said... We have what we have, and Andrew Scheer was the leader, and this has a lot of people looking back at uh, Ronna Ambrose, uh, Peter McKay. Uh, Lisa Raitt would have been another great contender. However, she lost uh, her seat in the, uh, in the Milton area. So uh, many are wondering what is going to happen with the next scenario. That being said, nobody expected Justin Trudeau to, uh, to lose this, next, uh, this past election. Therefore, any gains that Andrew Scheer has should be a bonus. No? Are we being too hard on him uh, for, for not taking greater advantage of this situation? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman. Summa Strategies has served as an advisor to a number of national party leaders and cabinet ministers uh, with Abacas, and he is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, I hear you got almost summer-like day in Hamilton. I'm in St. John's today, and I can tell you I'm in the midst of almost like winter, and mm. it's also a wintry day for Andrew Shear. Even people here, not a big, strong region for the Conservatives, chatting about Mr. Shear's future. Uh, many predicted that Justin Trudeau would take two elections anyway. Why so critical of Mr. Shear? I mean, at the end of the day, did he not do a fair a bit better? I mean, should that not be taken into account, or was the opportunity greater than the success? Uh, I, I think the answer to your question is the latter part of it, uh, that the the opportunity uh, many conservatives perceived to take down Mr. Trudeau because he was so wounded, not just by SNC, but uh, historic incidents like blackface and just what seemed to be a uh, discombobulated campaign for for re-election to start with, have left him uh, had left him in a place where conservatives thought Andrew Scheer should have won that campaign. That kind of disregarded. Uh, the whole lead-up and the context and the like, but once a train has left the station, as this one has, and a sense that uh, that Trudeau could have been beaten, it's uh, hard to park that train. Is this on Andrew Scheer or the Conservative Party? 
uh, all of the above. Uh, look, I, I think uh, the leader obviously wears responsibility when you don't win uh, a, a government. But again, I, I think his yardsticks were different than the parties, and I think the party, the party's got to, to think about you know, how it uh, runs campaigns. Uh, some of that's Andrew Shears fault, um, but some of that's also the party's fault. Time to throw away the Harper playbook, I think, and, and recognize that uh, the style and approach to campaigning needs to be uh, reinvigorated. Mr. Shear does have to answer for you know, not having really compelling personal answers when it came to how he would uh, manage his own views on uh, same-sex marriage. Are you surprised uh, about that? Because it's as if he thought he wasn't going to get asked, or uh, that everybody um, would just. I, like... I just think he. I, I think he thought he could get away with describing it as you may have ten years ago, awkwardly and personally. But I think now we have. We live in a bit of a confessional age, Scott, and we expect our politicians, uh, and maybe this is part of the impact of Trudeau, to be able to tell us. How how they came to the position that they they have now found themselves because Mr. Shear don't forget there was a tape that had come out of him talking about uh, his opposition to same sex marriage about a tail and a dog and you remember all of that and then he seemed rather uncomfortable when he began to respond to it and people just weren't uh, overly uh, convinced that he was actually in fact not going to mess around with it and you know part of that is him. Uh, but part of that is, is a culture where, you know, there are still some elements in the Conservative Party that do, well, they do recognize the law and, and aren't likely to change it. They do like to have this conversation about it. It's uh, time to move past all of it. Uh, are you surprised that Andrew Scheer didn't have a ready answer for this question? Uh, I mean, I remember having him on the show and asking him about walking in the pride parade or not walking in the pride parades. And, uh, and he said that, um, you know, it went off with the standard stock answer about how they, uh, will respect everybody and all their rights and blah, 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 blah. But again, it, it still never really addressed the question. Why did he just not use this? Uh, to express his religious freedom here? Why did he not play the religious card more here in the sense that, you know, I'm a religious man. Yeah, you have a right to have a different perspective. And I've got a different perspective here um, because if it was any if it was any other religion, we'd probably respect that. So why why would he just not come forth with that? Well, uh, he clearly was uncomfortable expressing it in any manner, uh, as you witnessed and as other reporters witnessed when they asked him the same question. So, uh, the answer to that question is I don't know, and I, I think again that 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 half in half out kind of answer that he gave uh, frustrated a lot of people. Here's what he said on the show when we asked him about the pride parade. Does that mean you'll appear in a pride parade? Look, there's a lot of different ways to uh, support equality rights in in Canada. And uh, I myself have a motion uh, in the House of Commons to ensure that the government does more to help uh, people who are being discriminated against because of their sexual orientation. Uh, that's the way that, that that's one of the ways I'm I'm choosing to show my support. We've got lots of members of our caucus who do march. Uh, it's, I'm proud to live in a country where people have that right to express themselves and to, uh, to, to where we have that freedom of speech. I will work tirelessly to protect those rights, those equality rights for all Canadians. He never once there mentioned the word religion. Why not? 
uh, again, because I think he thought if that were brought to the fore, then he would be accused of being an active social conservative. And I think in the end, he, uh, he, he didn't put to rest the fact that he has social conservative views and people weren't necessarily convinced they wouldn't creep into uh, his decision-making proce- process, though he said that would not be the case. And the Liberals, the Liberals use that to their credit, uh, to cause and, and so concern about Mr. Scheer's positions. Uh, will he ever resonate in Ontario with a view like this? Does he have to change this? Oh, of course, Scott. All about Ontario. What about us here in Newfoundland, man? We that, was my ne- there. that was my Any- next question. Oh, God. <laughs> no, so you would have been a good political leader. You're pandering. It's perfect. Oh, um, uh, will he resonate in Ontario? It's going to be tough unless he's able to manage a conversation over the next number of months that uh, shows that he's learned from the election, shows that he's more comfortable talking about these issues. Look, I, I never think you can pronounce on a politician being uh, dead or his or her political career are over. We've seen too many examples of politicians having nine lives. Uh, so it's all how Mr. Shear handles the next number of months, how he handles the criticism, and does he have a big open dialogue about all of this? I think if he did, there may be more benefits than risk to it, and he's got to take some risks. So have an open dialogue about what you're going to do and why you think you should stay. You know, he could turn this around to his advantage if he did just that. Could he not? Yeah, and and what I mean, arguably, what does he have to lose? There has yeah. been a what it's been a week since the election has taken place. Every day, there has been some a columnist or story that is suggesting he's at fault. He needs to go. Why doesn't he get more aggressively in front of this open uh, announcement? And he has said he's doing a review process to his credit, but talk more about it and talk about what he's trying to uh, to achieve uh, in that exercise. It worked for Justin Trudeau when he took over the Liberals and tried to break down some of the old historical factions in there, and it helped build some trust for people with Trudeau and a Liberal Party that had been vilified for a decade. So what happens next? Uh, this goes before a leadership review, then what happens? Well, it being a conservative party, it'd be, be like when you and I used to talk in SNC-Laval, I suspect every week somebody will come forward and say Andrew Scheer needs to go. In terms of formality, if Mr. Scheer stays on between now and the conservative uh, convention, so the conservatives have a convention in 2020, so if he stays on, as they say, between now and then, and there's no sense that he's going to leave yet, then we'll hear stories about it all week, and then it will call or every week, and then it will culminate to a certain degree in uh, April. I think it's April 16th to 18th, 2020, just down the road from you in Toronto. There will be a vote, as is mandated after conservatives lose an election in their platform uh, on the state of the leadership. Uh, if he gets 50 plus one, he gets to stay though arguably there's that old Joe Clark number, you need at least 70% support. So Mr. Shear, if he's intent on staying, is going to be aggressively working to court support between now and April 2020. Um, will a new leader change the fortune of the Conservative Party, or do they need a complete revamp from ideology all the way down? 
Yeah, I don't know if they need a complete revamp, but they certainly got to change a few things, uh, and, and significantly. Whether it's Mr. Shear, Peter McKay, Rana Ambrose, Jason Kenny, you know, you, you can't run, you heard me say it a few moments ago, I'll say it again, you can't run the typical Harper playbook. I think we, the conservatives need to be a bit more expansive and counterintuitive. So can, Conservatives move beyond banal talking points on carbon tax, carbon tax, carbon tax, which, yes, is a concern to people to talk about something uh, advantageous and, and against current brand in dealing with climate change. Can the conservatives talk again uh, about uh, how people deal with, can deal with uh, affordability challenges beyond just the menu of tax credits that have been on offer for the last 15 years. Things like that, counterintuitive, perhaps a big idea, uh, are, are important. And also putting to rest this notion that there's any conservative leadership uh, aspirant who uh, is willing, uh, who, you know, who, who's against attending pride parades or who has concerns about gay marriage, those issues rightly have been settled and most Canadians, an overwhelming number of them, have moved on from them. So must the Conservative Party. Hmm. Uh, if it was a uh, Ronna Ambrose, Lisa Raid, or Peter McKay in the in the position, could they have had a different outcome, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's like fantasy football, right? It's, yes, it is. You change, you change. Fantasy the, the rugby. Tag. There you go. Are you changed the tub? That's better, Scott. Better. We're getting along so well. I mean, well, you know, I feel I, could, I feel I slighted you with the Ontario comment, so I'm trying you hard. You did, buddy. Here. You did. But it's like putting Tom Brady in as the Ticats quarterback and adding Julian Edelman. Yeah, you're probably going to win more games, but <laughs> guess what? It's not going to happen. Equally, it may not happen that Lisa, Rana, and Peter offer themselves. Maybe conservatives could have done better. Who knows? You don't know how the campaign runs, but conservatives are certainly convinced, and maybe that's all that matters right now. And the thing Andrew Scheer ought to worry about, conservatives are convinced with, that if they had a leader named something other than Andrew Scheer, they mm. would have done better. Uh, considering this is a minority government and may have a limited shelf life, is it important to get this done uh, and, and these questions answered soon? Rather than later. Yeah, I look, I think six months is a good timeline. I think that uh, allows lots of reflection that, that leads us into to that April uh, convention. I think you don't want to do it too quickly either, because uh, to just assume that if you had another leader there, it all would have gone swimmingly is stupid as well. Uh, you need a comprehensive review. Important to remember, Shear himself, I think, alluded to, you know, Stephen Harper went through a whole period of soul-searching after he held Martin to a minority in 2004 and did a an extremely detailed review. Shear should do all of that. I, I don't think that it, need, it should drag on for more than a year, but it, it, it should take a few months to look at this comprehensively and not just simply switch up a leader and then make other mistakes that could uh, have been avoided had you done the proper reflection. Didn't we sort of go through this with Stephen Harper? I mean, you know, shaking the hand of his kid, all that sort of stuff, the light blue sweater. I mean, you know, many picked him apart, too, for the person that he was. Is this different? Um, well, I think you know, there, there are a lot of similarities. I, I think, though, where Harper probably had some runway and Sheer didn't, he had, you know, won a leadership convention after two parties had been united. He was a key architect and all of that. Uh, and people recognize that, you know, others weren't necessarily going to put up their hand. Now I think there's a sense that, well, maybe this could be a great job and some political star of yesteryear or of future year will step in and, and do this. So I think there, 
there are differences, and I think their skill sets are different. I think whether you like Harper or not, you viewed him as a significant political figure, a thoughtful political figure. Uh, Mr. Shear hasn't built up that persona with enough conservatives to make him comfortable in his current position. If you're a betting man, would you say that Andrew Shear will be in the position for the next election? I, I think I've said this to you before, I believe we're going to see a few leaders change between now and the next election, and I think Mr. Scheer may be one of them. Uh, any more rumbling about whether the Prime Minister will move on? Uh, not yet. I mean, he's got an immediate job to do, of course, which is get his cabinet up and running, find a way to connect with the West. Um, I, I think he'll be fully committed to that over the next number of months and, and through the year. Does does he want to go forward? I mean, he he... Uh, he still certainly uh, is in the catbird seat, but no more rumblings at the moment. But his own party, I suspect, will be watching what happens with cabinet and how he reaches out to the West. And uh, that will lead to observations, Scott, that may lead to further reflection on his part. So do you think he stands a chance in your part of the woods? We love down here in Newfoundland and Labrador. They won six or seven seats. I mean, uh, and the NDP had had the other one, but there are certainly people, uh, you know, who were were frustrated with the prime minister and his team and the way they won the campaign, as uh, they ran the campaign and and sort of pulled it out of a hat there in the end. So, uh, I think you'll hear a lot of people demand that the prime minister change up his staff. You'll recall that was a. A, a refrain even before the campaign, and though Jerry Butts had, had gone, uh, other uh, others it was suggested ought to leave, and he changed the way he does things. Uh, would this have been a great success for Jerry Butts? Would this have what, sir? The election, this election campaign, would it have been a great success for Jerry Butts? Uh, well, I'm sure it will be framed as uh, throwing the Hail Mary right at two minutes to win the game when the game looked uh, difficult. But it certainly wasn't the, su- the success that 2015 was. And it's hard not to argue that Justin Trudeau is a much more diminished politician than he was. Now he's starting back at square one. He has to show a whole new skill set as he looks to manage a government that doesn't have uh, a majority of seats. Uh, across the country. Is the mood of the country different now? Are we looking at this Prime Minister differently? Yeah, look, I, I, as I said three times, just to get my Newfoundland Labrador plug-in almost as much as I do rugby, yeah, the mood the mood is different. I mean, people are concerned. We've seen this spat uh, with the people in Newfoundland and, and, and Alberta over Western alienation. You know, people in Ontario, uh, particularly conservatives, feel uh, that their own party doesn't get them, and that Trudeau is, is not the best uh, person to run the organization. Quebec is, has an empowered bloc. Where will that lead us? Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have it as poisonous or venomous as perhaps they do in the U.S. or even the United Kingdom, but there's dis- dissatisfaction in the land, to be sure. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.